Princeton theology was a tradition of conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian theology that thrived at Princeton Theological Seminary and lasted from the founding of the institution in 1812 until the 1920s. After that point, due to the increasing influence of theological liberalism at the school, the last Princeton theologians left to found Westminster Theological Seminary. The school was shaped by several theologians, including Jonathan Edwards and later Princeton theology, included men like Archibald Alexander and B.B. Warfield Hodge, and their particular blend of teaching, which together with its old-school Presbyterian Calvinist orthodoxy, sought to express a warm evangelicalism and a high standard of scholarship. William Tennant of the Log College, Gilbert Tennant and William Tennant Jr. of the College of New Jersey, and Jonathan Edwards of Princeton University are considered predecessors to the Princeton theologians. Archibald Alexander, as I said, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, and B.B. Warfield were major figures promoting Princeton theology. Gerhardus Vos, J. Gresham Machen, Cornelius Van Til, Oswald T. Alice, Robert Dick Wilson, and John Murray were also notable successors of the Princeton theologians. Of these, only Machen and Wilson represented the American Presbyterian tradition that was directly influenced by Princeton theology. Voss and Van Til were Dutch Reformed. Murray was a Scot, but a student under Machen at Princeton who later followed him to Westminster. Murray and Van Til were both ministers in the OPC, which Machen founded. But something happened. A liberal shift had been taking place. It had been eroding the foundations that giants like Warfield, Hodge, and Edwards had built. Princeton Theological Seminary had been overrun by liberals. In turn, an institution of great magnitude was lost. And so Westminster Theological Seminary was founded and formed in 1929, largely under the leadership and funding of J. Gresham Machen. Though independent, it had a close relationship with the OPC, which, again, Machen helped found in 1936. The seminary was founded by members of the faculty of Princeton Theological Seminary, following a controversy over the liberal direction that Princeton was beginning to take. Westminster Theological Seminary considers itself today to be faithful in continuation of Princeton's historic theological tradition. Many of the founders, including Machen, Murray, Oswald Alice, Robert Dick Wilson, and Cornelius Van Til had been professors at Princeton and left when Westminster was founded. As this story illustrates, seminaries are a key battleground for the culture war. Whoever controls the seminary also has major influence and control and power over hundreds and thousands of pastors who will train millions of American Christians over the span of a generation. Today, even conservative seminaries like the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, or Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, have been infiltrated by a lot of the same liberal drift. We have people at those seminaries who are teaching or sympathetic towards same-sex attracted proponents and revoice in St. Louis. We have woke professors and we have most definitely critical race theory. The question is, will these seminaries, once conservative bastions, will they also be lost to liberalism, like Princeton before them was? Some would say they already have been. When I attended Southern Seminary in the OOs, we shared libraries with the Presbyterian Seminary down the road. When you walked into the library, a giant painting of the Westminster Seminary founders 
with J. Gresham Machen posted up prominently in the center. This painting overlooked the massive tables and shelves of books. I would always go there because no one was checking out things like John Owen, and so I could always find a copy at the Presbyterian Seminary. But as you looked around the library, what was it filled with? It was filled with overweight women and butch haircuts and dudes in skinny jeans with no chest and zero muscle mass. Tons of effeminacy. The hold cart for classes where they keep your books was full of feminist and queer theory. Just outside the library by the parking lot was a prayer labyrinth, a New Age maze in case you don't know what that is. It's a New Age maze you walk as you, quote, work your way closer to God. If Jay Gresham Machen could see it now, I I wonder what he'd be thinking. I wonder if he'd have anything to say about what's become of the modern theological seminary in America. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. Today, I am playing your host number one, the host with the most, Eric Mm. Kahn. And number two host, gentlemen, who will I pick? I'm actually going to pick Brian Sauvet only because I like the look on Dan's face when I do that. No, I'm the favorite, so it makes sense that you'd introduce me last. <laughs> I see how it is. So uh, I see how it is. Gentlemen, welcome welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, I appreciate it, You're welcome. It, oh, Brian, hold on. I was talking to Dan. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Wait, no, I don't. No, I'm I, not. I am. I'm. I apologize for apologizing just now. I'm not Canadian, and I'm not sorry. By the way, until you get a mic in front of your face, you don't realize how much you curl your mustache. It is impressive. Do you see? I mean, they keep going. They're going to come all the way around. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's massive. Yep. It, in fact, some might it's say huge. it's huge, it's huge, and glorious. Even it's huge. Speaking of mm. huge, today we're going to be talking about covenant succession as it relates to pastoral training, a huge issue. Yeah in the church today. But before we do that, Brian, we have a Patreon-exclusive content. I wonder if you wouldn't just tell our wonderful listeners what that's about and how they can get a hold of it. Let me explain to you that the best content in the King's Hall is After Hours, the the, the patron-exclusive podcast that we do. And it's because there is no preparation whatsoever for it. And it is the most fun that we have in front of microphones, I think. There's I think even can, less filter. We can agree on that. Oh, yeah. You you should definitely become a patron of the King's Hall for two reasons. Number one, because let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's support Christian media and help us continue to make this show possible. But also just because, yeah, like I said, you get you get access to some great content after hours. You hear Eric, you know, basically responding to whatever the most controversial tweets of that week have been. And then saying, your thoughts, Dan. Your thoughts, Dan. <laughs> And then three seconds into Dan's answer, I kindly interrupt, interrupt him. him and then provide what I think the answer should be. <laughs> You're like, yeah, no, anyway, but what I wanted to say was. Yeah, that's great, Dan. Here's what I was teeing myself up for. So, so And it's true. usually really insightful. So, so accurate. Well done. Yes. Thank you for interrupting me. Please do it more often. Uh, well, you got it. Uh, speaking <laughs> of interrupting, I'm going to interrupt that thought by jumping into our main episode. Uh, Gentlemen, today we're talking about covenant succession, again, as I said, as it relates to pastoral training. We are going to be talking about how pastors are trained in today's churches. We'll be asking questions like, is that a problem? Is it a good thing? Are there foundational issues that we have seen with it? And then we're going to also look at some things like what pastors generally are facing if they decide to go into this meat grinder that is, you know, acquiring, like, where do you find these pastors? How do you recruit them? 
uh, send them to seminary? And then what are some of the pitfalls of this entire model? And I think ultimately, gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think ultimately we're going to be proposing a different model than really what is the model for how do you train pastors for big, fast, and famous? Yes. Right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, even training pastors to be to please the existing church member conglomerate. Yeah, or that's right. amalgamation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so we're going to be delving into that and I think it's it's key to an idea we've been espousing which is building Christendom over several generations. Right? Because it means that no single one of us can complete the necessary work of building Christendom, particularly in this case regarding the church sphere. This can't be done in a single generation by just us, which means we're going to have to pass this work on building Christendom to our sons and other qualified men. Now, currently, most research data shows that the average pastor lasts between three to four years at a single church before moving on. And you notice in the data usually that first-time pastors at first-time churches tend to wash out a ministry at a pretty high rate as well. You know, data here is, is different. But even someone like, say, Trevin Wax at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, My he, personal favorite news outlet. Personal favorite. And theology source. Are you guys blocked, by the way, on Twitter? I, You know what? I'm proud to say that I have so little care about what they're doing that I haven't even looked. Yeah, so I was blocked like five years ago. You definitely earned it, I, I think. <laughs> by the Gospel Coalition and anyone affiliated with it. <laughs> uh, but even somebody like Trevin Wax, I think this article is a few years old, but he has an article that I'll read from in just a moment. He argued the tenure is more like five to seven years. But even if we granted that, that's ridiculously low when we're thinking about how do we build Christendom. But I did want to read an excerpt about what life and ministry is like for a lot of these pastors. I've experienced this personally. Wax presents a picture of ministry, again, that so many people end up in this situation. He says this, quote, Many ministers begin in a small rural churches. Many of these churches are run by prominent families or a deacon board with strong community and family ties. Often these churches do not want to be pastored. And he's got this italicized. They do not want to be pastored. They want someone to come and preach and perform ministerial rites. They do not want to be challenged or led into deeper Christianity. A pastor who preaches a gospel that confronts complacency or apathy or other sins may find he is not welcome in that church. A minister might wind up in two or three of these types of churches within a 10-year period, end quote. So it's worth pointing out that a pastor in this situation is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Number one, you can throw in the towel, as many do, uh, regarding ministry, and you can say, this is I, I'm just not prepared for the meat grinder that this is. Or number two— you can jump churches every few years, if you're lucky. You climb the corporate church ladder, and then eventually the goal would be to be a pastor at a big, fast, and famous David Platt-style church. And with this whole model, we, we, we know there's, you know, I've called it a meat grinder, pastoral yeah. wood chipper. There's a lot of problems. But I want to ask you guys, just teeing this off, when you're thinking about multi-generational works and rebuilding Christendom, as the legacy project that we've envisioned, why is a three to seven year pastoral tenure so problematic? Yeah, I mean, there's really a, a few reasons. But first of all, when you said he has two options, I think they actually have three options. Yeah. So the first one you said he throws in the towel, you know, and just goes to work, you know, in in the secular world somewhere. Yeah. Or the next is to jump around churches, try to like 
essentially job hop like you would do also in the corporate world. Yeah. Every two, three, four years, you would get a new job to get more money, get a better position. I think the third option that was popularized some years ago is church planting as well. Oh, yeah, that's a good Just point. like, well, I'm just going to start over. Because quite honestly, to reform a church, we've talked about it before on the podcast, is really difficult work. If you get into a situation like this, especially if you're going to only hang around for three to seven years, getting back to your question, yeah, there's really not a whole lot you can accomplish in that short of time. Maybe seven years, you know, you'll definitely have a good pulse on what's going on in the church. But in three years, I mean, it's going to take you, you know, two years just for people to start to trust you a lot of times, especially if they're used to someone else. You know, you've got a, probably a lot of baggage from previous leadership, even if it's good, like they trusted the previous mm-hmm. pastor and they're like, well, you know, the guy before you, he did a really good job of doing X, Y, or Z. You know, I liked how he used to preach. This is what he would do. He did skits. If you could be more like him. Could you dress up like Moses like he did? Yeah. I actually had a pastor that did that. Did you really? Dress yeah. up like Moses? Yeah, he would come out. He would preach. I, I just now realized how strange that was. But growing up, that was like normal. He'd dress up like whatever, you know, prophet in the Old Testament. And then he would, no. Dan, he would do like real? a skit. Yeah, I'm not even joking. This happened. There was a whole costume uh, like wardrobe in the basement of the church with his beards and his did, different like tunics and did stuff anybody like that. ever bull- that's a case for bullying did anybody ever bully him it would have been helpful <laughs> no actually what ended up happening is that he resigned his position at the church in wisconsin and he went to california and i'm guessing it was to a much bigger church wow. so okay i'm so yeah that was really right now. really nice. really a uh, odd tangent <laughs> but the point is like weird things move so much slower in the church world than you think. Yeah. Because the thing is, you can't treat a church, I found this out, like a business where someone disagrees with your, your direction, someone um, maybe isn't performing well, you can't just fire them. Like, no, I'm a member of this church. Like, this is a volunteer organization. <laughs> you know, like there's no grounds for church discipline. I'm not yeah, right. necessarily sinning. Uh, so it, it's just, a, t- everything just takes so long and it's it's a slow work because you have to build trust. You have to get to know people. They have to get to know you. And then if you if you you know add to the to that the these people that don't want to be pastored. Oh man, like talk about hitting your head against a wall. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems like a lot of times one of the problems I found was okay. So you're in a church, uh, a church says, hey, we think that, you know, this identification process, they say, hey, we think you young man are a good pastoral candidate. Um, even this is problematic because like for me, in a lot of the churches, it was like, oh, you read your Bible more than once a week, pastor. Like you're ready to be a pastor. And, and it was like, if you showed any interest whatsoever in just the things of God, yeah, anywhere, man, it seemed like they want to push you into pastor. But then what do they do? Okay, you, we rip you out of your local context we send you to a seminary that's like, I don't know. I think ugh, when I was going, seminaries were like $600 a credit hour with a discount. Like if you were part of the denomination, I'm sure that's gone up. Yeah, it's unreal. So you're paying astronomical rates to you know take a class like Intro to Missiology, uh, which you could have just read the book and I don't know, go evangelize. But then you're, you're taken out of your local context, out from your people and pastoral care. You go into these seminary cities like Louisville or St. Louis, and you just kind of like, there's like millions of seminary students across the country at these places, and 
there's not really pastoral care. I remember going to a lot of the seminary churches. I'd be like, is there a place for me to serve here? And they're like, look, dude, we got so many people that want to serve. Like, just sit down and enjoy yeah. the ride. You'll be gone in a couple of years. You know, high transients, that sort of thing. And then, yeah, you end up going to one of these small town churches. You get put through the meat grinder. They don't love you. You're trying to do your best to love them. And I don't know, 80, I'd say 80% of my buddies who we've all done that. It's like a pretty brutal treatment for most young families. Because that's the other thing you think like, okay, well, while all this turmoil is going on, you're moving 10 times across the country and you're getting chewed up and spit out by some really bad people in churches. Yeah. You have a young family and a young marriage. Right. Not exactly ideal. So, Brian, I I just want to get your take, the three to seven year thing. How could you not build Christendom on that type of success rate? Well, I mean, I'm just coming into about, I think the eighth year is a month from now of serving as the teaching pastor of the church. Congratulations. Thank you. This is eight years. It'll be eight years in in, uh, November, I think. And, um, And I had been a pastor at this church before that in many different roles. So I had been involved in it since it was a core group. And uh, even still, I think about two years ago, I started to feel like I was pastoring the church, like actually pastoring the church. People were in the sense that to pastor somebody requires them to consider you to be a spiritual authority, an elder that they truly respect and want to follow. And that's a really tough ask when you're 25. Like, I again, the way that this all happened at our church, you can see previous episode where we talked to listener inquiries, I think is the first, the beginning of that title. It's a big ask. Like we wouldn't now make a 24, 25 year old, a pastor of the church. Almost, almost never. I mean, it just, it'd be very, very unusual for that to happen now because of this issue. And then it just takes a long time for people to change. It takes a long time to move a herd of sheep somewhere (laughs) ideologically. You have to think about the work of pastoring is, if you're doing it well, it's continually telling people to change or to stop changing. <laughs> you know, like, hey, no, stay stable. Stop going whatever crazy harebrained direction you got because you read a book or whatever you want to do. Your sin's tempting you. Or, you know, men, your your households aren't strong. You're not leading for your family. You're not discipling your children. Repent of this sin. Grow in grace. If you think about a herd of sheep in the work of a shepherd, you're continually protecting, calling, like there's the 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 sheep dogs are like, stay here, sheep, quit wandering off. Like it's a recipe for people to be frustrated and annoyed with you. And so the way that you gain cre- credibility in that system is that it's impossible to microwave it if you're pastoring properly. It's from them, the ones who do stick around, taking your counsel and it working. And then bearing even like generational fruit, right? Yes. And then them telling their children as they grow up, respect Pastor Sauve, respect Pastor Khan. When they speak, listen to them. Because let me tell you, son, when I was here, their preaching and teaching let us not, we were going to go this direction in our family. And instead we, we went this direction. It bore much fruit because they were, no glory to them. They were saying, this is what the Lord God would call you to do. And it just takes time for that to play out and to earn the credibility of that. You, you, you ha- men and women have to be able to see the fruit of faithful preaching and pastoring over the course of many years in their life before it's it's not just faith; it's actually sight. Yeah, in their pastor. So there's a, there's the teaching ministry. 
yeah. that you mentioned, there's also the counseling ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, so when disaster falls on a family, marital issues or just, you know, uh, circumstances outside of their control, and you're there walking them through it, and they see like, yeah, this is a guy I can trust. Because in the hard times, that's when it's built, right? The good times, is like, yeah. it's like a budget. When you're bringing in more money than you're spending, you know, it's pretty... I don't know. You just like, don't worry about it as much. But yeah. when things are tough, man, you're going to be paying attention. And so walking through the death of a loved one, sickness, mm, yeah. marriage issues, you know, relational issues, that, that's really when you, you know, earn trust. Yeah. And on that point, I think this is one of the key structural errors that I see in Christian church culture that relates to pastoral training is that our general vision for the kind of guy we want to pastor us is we want a brilliant rhetorician. We want a brilliant orator who can deliver sermons that are going to move me emotionally, uh, entertain and impress me. And we tend to even build our whole church services around this, where we've de-emphasized the participatory liturgy of confession of sin, assurance of pardon, singing, uh, responsive readings, the people worshiping God, And instead, we've made much of the service just an adornment, like the kale on the side of the steak plate that no one really cares about, the singing and all that. It's just adorning. It's a, it's what's the word that I'm looking for? It's a garnish. A garnish. The meat is the sermon. And so when you think about that, churches are trying to get as quickly as possible the most skilled orator to bring in the most people to entertain them, to fill their budget and and expand and hit the metrics of growth that they think are impressive or glorious. And the problem with that is that on that model, you can gain instant success because the target that they're aiming for is just, if you can get deliver a good sermon, you're going to pastor the biggest church. The problem is though, that that's not actually what pastoring is. That's not actually what corporate worship is. It's not just a lecture or a sermon. Well, I, and I think what this really gets down to when when I started, you know, went back, listened to Big Fast and Famous in preparation for this show, and then just thinking about what church has been for the last hundred and I don't know twenty years in America. Yeah, one of the things that struck me is everything we're talking about is really the corporatization of the American church, right? Turning yep. it everything is the corporate business model. So, I've worked in media for a number of years, and things like radio personalities. Well, for a while, they move the needle, and there's a lot of viewers or listeners or whatever it is. And so, you know, Colin Cowherd's with ESPN for a long time, and then they just decide, you know, after seven years, they're like, hey, he's really not doing it for us. We need to get a bigger name, or we just need to change it up. So you're really thinking about your pastor like you would think about talent. Right. And you're you're just looking at the church and saying, like, okay, we just don't have the draw we once did. Mm-hmm. Even guys like Mark Driscoll, I think that— the reason you couldn't argue with him for a long time was because of the success. And by success, I mean the numbers of people. Right. Consuming yep. his content, buying his books, even if his, Butts own, and budget. his own church was buying yeah. a bulk of those. But still, <laughs> there were a lot of people consuming the content. Yeah. Uh, so well, I want to ask about that in just a second. But first, I was thinking about the, the church in Prague, the High Castle Church in Prague. Mm-hmm. Took a thousand years to build, still building it, still working on it. One of the things you had to have in that scenario were – Lifesmen, or excuse me, lifers who are craftsmen. I just put two words together. Lifesmen actually sounds like a cool word. I just made up a word. Neologisms with Eric Kahn. Yeah, that's right. I'm here for it. So you got lifers who are craftsmen. But when you think about that, in order to build this glorious thing, it, you couldn't have high turnover for, say, the stone cutters. Right. You had to have a guy who was like, I'm going to do this my whole life. 
Uh, Dan, we were talking, I think, uh, with one of our friends at a scotch tasting. And, and I think he was talking about a, a distiller where some of these, I don't remember if it was what type of liquor it was, but they were saying basically like in his lifetime, this this batch won't even come out. Yeah, yeah. it was scotch. It was, it was talking about Brooklotti. Yeah, okay. And so I can't remember the gentleman's name who kind of revamped Brooklotti. Yeah. And he started putting... Uh, he was developing black art was the scotch. It's like his swan song. It's his Magnus Opum, right? Opus. Magnus, Magnus opus. opus. I think so. Yep. Pronunciation. Magnum Opus. Magnum Opus. Yeah. And he started putting some of that stuff up knowing that he was not even, he's, he was going to be retired, you know, by the time that his best work would be tasted at its peak. Right. You know, is it Jim McCowan? Was that the guy? Yes. He was, I, yeah, I, 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 I remember. Don't. That's that's such a good picture for this because you're, it's the kind of work where, like, making a person, conforming them to the image of God, even when it's talking about God's supernatural changing of a human being, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, for example, it says that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. <laughs> like, one degree at a time. That's like you're beholding the living God. This is how he intends to conform you. As you behold and worship God, you become like the Son of God. And it's like a degree at a time. Well, and it's interesting because when you look at what sanctification is, it's a biological process. But I think like Joel Salatin points this out. He's like, we're always trying to take the things of nature and biology and make them industrialized. Like hack them, yeah. And it doesn't work that way. Like people... You can't microwave Christian growth, like actual right. Christian growth. Even look at, in Ogden, we have a lot of homes were built between 1870 and 1940, just because of the the periods of expansion that happened in our city with the railroad and then the army depot, and there were some things behind that. But right. if you go and you take out a wall in a house and, and you take out or you cut a stud that was put in in 1908, the grain on that stud is going to be tight. You're going to see like on a two by four, maybe a hundred rings or 50 rings. If you go cut down into a wall that was built in 1998 or 2010, the stud is going to have these really soft wood pine that was, it grew really fast. It's not old growth pine anymore. It's, it's like we've gotten these varieties that just, they grow super fast and we're maximizing. But what you end up having is, that old growth pine with the really tight grain, it's much stronger. It's much harder wood. It's much more uniform. It doesn't warp the same. And this new stuff is kind of trash wood. So it's 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 way less strong. This When you see fast growth, you should always be skeptical of its durability and its quality. And what happens when you actually aim for fast growth as the mark of success? You're, you're kind of aiming for warped not really authentic, not durable, not lasting. You're kind of aiming for microwaved, ephemeral, not intergenerational work. Yeah, and so you're you're really going after a pastor and you're training him, Dan, like you would a business person. So one of the things I've often said about this model of identify, train, hire, send to seminary, send to small church, climb the ladder, blah, 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 uh, is I think it's flawed down to the foundations. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard for people to even grasp like, well, this is the way we've always done it, supposedly, in, in your lifetime. That's all you know. Um, they can't even think about a different way of training pastors because this is just the way it is. 
So I want to ask you guys if you think that this, if you agree with me that it's flawed to the foundations. And as you're thinking about that, this was early in my tenure. I went to Southern Seminary. And I remember Al Mohler saying something to the effect of the seminary's existence is only because of the failure of the modern local church. Mm. Because the local church is not training pastors, we we exist. So I, I actually agree with him. I don't, I'm not sure he actually believes that because he's president of the seminary and they take a lot of money from a lot of people mm-hmm. to train people I don't think they should off this corporate model. But you know, do, do you agree? Do you think this whole process is flawed to the foundation? I, I do. I do think it is. And I think we should put a pin in something and talk about it in a minute. Mm-hmm. And that would be what would a really good seminary look like? Yeah, we will there, get into there that. Does, there does need to be, and Christians, wherever they've gone, have done this, have sustained a certain caliber or class of intellectual, theologian, thinker, scholar that was warmly related to the church, devotional, that wasn't corporatist but that maintained a high level of intellectual rigor. And that absolutely should exist. I think we talk about how that could look. But but when we're looking at this industrialized, um, like conveyor belt seminary model that, like you said, immediately takes the qualified guy out of the local church, You're like, yeah, you should be a pastor. I affirm you in that at the local church. Go across the country, go to seminary with people you don't know for four years, get in debt, delay having children with your wife, have her work nights at the local diner, to pay your bills, establish a household economy where you depend on your wife to work and you've delayed having children, uh, and, and so that then you can go get a low-paying job at a difficult church that is just trying to hire the best preacher they can possibly get on some levels and go struggle and make $30,000 a year and have a wildly dysfunctional family, really a sad wife. And, and I, I'm not saying that's the only thing that ever happens out of seminary. It's very common, though. But that's a common pipeline. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. To me, the way that I would want to answer that question is by describing the ideal in our context And that for me, this is like a high bar, but what it would look like for us is that, okay, this young man has grown up in our church. His parents are members in good standing. We've known his parents and him for multiple decades. He's been educated in our school or in a a homeschooling context in the church. So we know that he's Christianly educated. He's borne good fruit in his participation. He's shown years of stability theologically and in his character that we have observed He's known by the congregation, and they and they love him. He's expressed a desire and call to ministry and sought out training and experience from the existing pastorate, who've then 
given him theological education, pointed him to resources and overseen that to some degree. He's been through a candidacy process where he's been tested in the church for a year and the people affirm him and they say, yes, this man is a pastor. Then he's ordained and he intends to live in this community and build it or to maybe go and plant, you know, like I think churches should plant in concentric circles as they're establishing and particularizing new churches out of a mother church. He's like, yeah, I'm going to get some experience in this church. And then one day, Lord willing, I'm going to go plant a church in Salt Lake City or in the next county over. Uh, and and we're going to maintain relationship. And to me, that's like the absolute ideal, what I just described. It's not the low bar. Like there's lots of other ways to become a pastor in our church that didn't look like that. But the degree of confidence and competence and authentic pastor-sheep relationship that would come out of something like that. And then if that guy pastors for 20, 30, 40, 50 years in this church or in establishing other mother-daughter church, I mean, that's the type of thing where that's stonework. That guy's life is a a big, solid, square-cut stone in the wall of a cathedral. And you need a lot of them to build the cathedral over hundreds of years. But that guy's life absolutely is going to hold the wall up in the intergenerational work. Yeah, Yeah, and that... You're right. That would be the ideal. None of us, unfortunately, had that option. So to get to your question, Eric, that the model that we have now is flawed because it's a ripoff of the corporate world, you know, because you're trying to get results quickly, Uh, almost like I'm going to be the CEO type. Uh, I need to to be a good orator, uh, having a marketing and brand mentality in order to grow. And, and, and so what do we do then that's different than that? Or, mm-hmm. And if you look at the scriptures, what is it, what are we emphasizing in our, in our seminaries? And I know we're going to critique seminaries a little bit more, but what is the emphasis in a seminary? It becomes desire is king. I desire to be an elder yeah. or a pastor, and I'm going to go pay for an education where then they train your intellect. Mm-hmm. But most of the qualifications for elder are not intellectual, right. although there are, but they're actually character. Yeah. And so you want to talk about tight grained, straight grained, strong, godly men are men of character, not just men of talent, not just men of education, yeah. but are men that are principled on the right principles that have a solid home. They have a solid family. They have a solid understanding of the word. And quite honestly, most of those men, the best pastors, are going to be somewhat boring or obscure in history. They're going to be forgotten because they're going to be doing the ordinary work of a pastor. Not the not the glamorous, like American idol sort of version of the pastor, like who can make it big? You know, who's going to be the next rising star in in the big evil world? Mm-hmm. Who's going to replace John MacArthur? You know, or something like that. Yeah. But instead, it's going to be doing the 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 work of charactered and principled godly men. That's what we should be looking at. It's the character of men, not just the desire and the intellect. And it's it's so hard to, like you said, the seminaries are selecting for not that, at least in its proportion. I know they have things where they're like, yeah, pastoral re- reference, and you they, they would say, well, we do assess character, but the grain of the training is 90 plus percent 
intellectual theological training that by the definition of the thing is very difficult to observe the true character of a man because he just got here from somewhere else yeah. and he's going to leave. Well, and that's the thing. So it's like when you, when you do the entrance portion of, you know, you got to write a thing, so yeah. you, know, you know, answer all these questionnaires uh, about your character and stuff like that. Yeah, your church has to sign off on it. But yeah, it, I mean, it's fundamentally like it would, it's easy for people to fake. And I would just say from anecdotal evidence, one of the biggest most disillusioning things about going to seminary was we, I got there and I was like surrounded by dudes who were like, I just talked to you for 30 seconds and I know without a doubt in my mind, you should not, you should not be not qualified for ministry. And and here's the other thing think about. So this is something that we talked about in our schooling model. We built our school yeah. to not depend on getting enough students to come so that we can pay our bills. Seminaries. I know they have big endowments and there's other ways they fund them, but think about what would happen if they got twice as choosy about their applicants. Most yeah, of them would go bankrupt. It incentivizes them to take more students. To take students, yeah. yeah. And and also to spin off degree programs that are designed for people who aren't going to be pastors. So they, so they have mission drift as well, educating women in seminaries in certain contexts or with pastoral degrees and you know, so when you build a model that depends for its continued existence on fundraising from getting enough butts in your students, in your classroom seats, you have a structural problem there that is not the same. Uh, the church does not have this misaligned incentive structure to the church when it's developing elders locally. It has a high degree of incentive to make sure they're qualified in their character. Yeah, because they have to live with them. Because they're they're going to be past, they're going to be partners and pastored, and you know, with this guy, they're he's going to be their problem. But think about how many churches. I know this is this is cynical a little bit. How many guys have expressed a desire for the elder for the pastorate to their local pa- church pastor and they're saying, "I want to go to Southern. I want to go to some seminary. Will you give me a pastoral reference?" And the pastor's thinking, "I could get into a big." argument and cause a lot of waves with this family, with his parents or with this guy by saying, no, I I genuinely cannot imagine you being a good pastor. And instead, like maybe it's not even character. Maybe it's just like low EQ, not good at talking to people. Like you're not going to be a good pastor. How many pastors have just gone, you know what? Maybe he'll wash out in four years or he's not my problem anymore. Sign the thing. all the time. Didn't want to make waves, gave the reference instead of really thinking, would I let this guy pastor my kid's church? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's that a, happens. It's a very real thing. And I, I think it's a good transition into what we'll talk about next, which is really getting into the seminary and unpacking why I think in many ways the academy uh, has failed us and it's it's become a problem. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, my own experience uh, in the OOs, going to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, Al Moeller was there. And the reason I went there was really because it was regarded as one of the most conservative options. Yeah for a Baptist-minded person, of which I was at the time. Um, So went there, got recommendations. I looked at Covenant in St. Louis. But, you know, there was a lot going on positively for Southern Seminary at the time. So we're not very many years removed from that. You've got a lot of missional drift, as Brian has already alluded to. Uh, Al Mohler has changed his position on homosexuality, which was problematic. Um, And then the CRT wokeness stuff in their midst. Of course, the seminary spawned Russell Moore and unleashed him uh, this political operative on the world. Thank you very much. Unleashed is the correct word. Unleashed. Yeah, and 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 there's been no correction offered either. Russ, when I was there, he was the dean of the School of Theology. What? Yeah. No wonder, Eric. All of your problems, you can blame on that. Uh, basically, yeah. yeah. If basically, you ever have one. That's the scapegoat. If we discover the first flaw in you, 
that's what we'll attribute it to. We that's haven't right. yet, to be clear, listeners. That's right. I mean, come it, on. It, it's, it's Eric fu- Kahn. It's funny, too, at the time, like, I, when I was there, I thought Russ was great. Um, he delivered some chapel messages that were really superb. Good orator. Um, yeah. He was a great orator. He, he was actually, at the time, he was talking about patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the guys who really pushed the whole Christian adoption movement. Yep. Um, which now kind of looks nefarious, um, especially in light of the, like, don't love your own people, adopt people from somewhere else. That's kind of a weird... A weird flex, and and Russ definitely not conservative anymore. Uh, editor in chief now at Christianity Today, Al Mohler's gotten himself repeatedly in hot water for refusing to answer the woke crowd. Um, he's got people teaching wokeness in his seminary. His own professors. Uh, I, I talked to people at County Before Country who are students there, and uh, these people told me they said, "Yeah, no, we have dudes dudes on our campus right now wearing like tube tops, who are almost what? openly homosexual." It's it's well known by the student body. It's it's not being addressed. So they said, "Hey, I we've listened to your podcast. We know you have concerns from like ten years ago. It's worse than you think. It's gotten way worse than what you're talking about." <sighs> so I think at the very least, it's hyper. It, it's concerning, right? This whole thing is concerning. Now I will say this: I learned a lot of things in seminary, but actually, when you when I look at my life now and and where I am theologically, the things that have driven, say, like the Kings Hall Hardman podcast, yeah. The core doctrines that underpin my life were not learned at seminary, which I think is kind of weird. Like, you'd think you'd get them at seminary. Seminary was largely like, yeah, this is not right. And we'll start to unpack some of those problems with the, the seminary model. But what I did learn is that what you really need is, is mentors and fathers in the faith, men in the local church who can teach. One of the things I'll say about the CREC, left seminary, eventually became part of the CREC, we're not saying your pastor shouldn't be trained. We're just saying s- most seminaries are probably not the option. Yeah, don't hear us saying we want men who so, don't care about the intellectual, don't care about theological right. training or rigor. Our school teaches Greek and Latin to elementary school students, okay? Like, we care about rigor. So one of the beauties of the CRAC is that they have really emphasized the importance of academic training yeah. of some sort for pastors. As a result of that— Almost every pastor that I've known in the CRC is more than qualified to teach you systematic theology, at least get you into the languages somewhat. They're more than equipped for that. And because of the connection with classical Christian education in the CRC, yes. many of them have a high degree of rigor in the old paths, in reading the classics of theology and yes. Reformed Protestant thinking. And and actually, that's one of the reasons that some of the CREC guys get in trouble is because they actually sound like the Reformers, which in our <laughs> yeah. modern antinomian, Luth, quasi-Lutheran law gospel obsession, we they, they can they sound very, uh, what's the word? They just, they, they stand out because they have an often historic uh, theology of the law and the gospel and of these things. And so I think I think that's another example of why the answer to this isn't just going to be change the seminary a little bit or whatever. It's like we're talking about a total interlocking of education with then vocational training, theological training, pastoral training. They're all interlinked. Yeah, that's they right. should be in so, the ideal scenario. So I want to kind of do two things. One first to go over some of the problems. We've been doing that. So some of these were, you know, we've already taken care of and then move into what Brian has alluded to before this better model um, and what you're what you're talking about now, getting to a better model. So some of the key problems that I've seen and get your take on this from the seminary model. Number one, incredibly expensive, as I mentioned, debt, working nights. Um, and number two, tied very closely to that it's not family friendly. 
I, right. I, I remember early on at orientation, Russell Moore was making a joke, and he said, yeah, when you come here, you know, we're so rigorous. He goes, I told my wife when I started my PhD, um, you know, I'll see you in a few years. I'm, I'm just going to get an apartment at the library. <laughs> and it was like a running joke that you're not going to see your family for a few years. Your wife's going to be working. One of the things that I eventually left over was this whole model, but the primary qualification is how I treat and take care of my family for for ministry. So I felt like if I abandoned my family for four years to go harden the paint on a seminary education, I've actually disqualified myself. First Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Right? Yeah, a man who doesn't manage his household well, that's one household. How is he going to manage this household of households with 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 households? He's answer. He's going to manage it the same way he managed his household, not not well. So structurally, a lot of the time, the 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 idea successfully going to seminary will mean failing. Well, I mean, just with those first two issues, having that much debt coming out of school, and then I don't know if people are aware of this, but most pastoral callings don't pay very much. And so you you get you have to get a house or or some sort of apartment, and in our membership interview, you know, just with members of the church, we ask about their finances. I mean, specifically debt uh, and some spending habits if there's mm-hmm. if there are issues there. And man, that I mean, not managing your finances well, it with debilitating debt could yeah. be a massive problem. Well, think about even the, just the yeah. stress it puts on a, a marriage and a relationship. Where I mean, one of the pastoral jobs that that when when I was pastoring um, was actually one of the better paying jobs that was available in pastoral ministry for small town stuff. I got paid forty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, most guys were significantly less than that, and so a, a lot of churches, especially in the SBC, you would hear this. They would say, "We will keep them poor, and God will keep them humble." It's horrible. Yeah, that becomes really problematic because all of a sudden you've got a guy who has to service his debt. He's a debt slave right, to the seminary, yeah. he has a low-paying job, a, f- a wife that's probably somewhat disappointed with him, and now he comes to a hard pastoral issue Is he where be he has courageous? to address something in the church, yeah. and that's the point of contention, whether he's a hireling or not. Will he start doing the math? And, I mean, I really feel bad for these guys. Yeah, it's horrible. Because they've not been prepared. Nobody gave them the gift of saying no yeah. or not this way. Like, yeah. do let's do this a different way. And now they're in a position to where uh, compromise is a massive temptation. Yeah, I mean, just even not having debt and having a somewhat well-paying, as far as pastor, you know, pastoring is concerned, and you're in a counseling situation with maybe a, a, a someone that tithes a larger amount, yeah. and you're like, the sin of partiality is on the it's forefront of my temptation. mind right now, and I have to be able to just speak truth and say, you know what, if I have, if I lose my job, so be it. Yeah. Let God's will be done. But if you have just debilitating debt and you don't have a lot of income, you're in a hard pastoring situation. Yeah. You haven't had the grain of your character tested and strengthened. That's really setting up pastors, young guys, for for failure. Yeah. And and to compromise. And 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 you got to think like a guy that compromises like that. It's just like any other sin, masculine sin especially. It's it's very shameful. You know, a lot of masculine sin is very shameful. Yeah. And that, you know, being, you know, compromising on your principles is very shameful. Yeah. It gives you guilt, crippling guilt, which makes it puts hooks on you that are easy to manipulate you. I remember um, in 2020, there was a family 
in our church that I knew just, you know, as a pastor, you, you end up knowing budget things. You have to oversee the budget too. I knew that they gave 10% of our monthly budget, one family, just because of the nature of their careers, where they were, they both had high paying white collar jobs. And through the, uh, COVID thing, it became clear that they were not going to, that if we continued the direction we were, yeah, we're going to open. Yeah, we're going to not, you know, all these different things that we weren't going to do the COVID stuff. And uh, they ended up leaving the church. And I just think how easy it would have been to think about, to do the math while trying to shepherd. You can't do the math while you're shepherding. I mean, you you can't, you're literally forbidden. And if we had, that's the beginning of the end. Because now you're compromised, like you said, Dan, you have shame, you have guilt, and that's a hook. And and once you have that hook, without repentance, which would probably require you to step down in, in a lot of these scenarios, you're, the, the church is going to be in decline until the Lord removes you or removes the church's lampstand. Yeah, and this is one reason, too, I, I think it's beneficial for guys to at least be able to have some sort of tent-making skill that they can actually make serious living off of. Yeah. Um, something that we've talked a lot about, I know Michael Foster has as well, so that when the church comes to you, because they do, um, I've had similar situations, elders, you have to discipline them and they're like, hey, well, I give 10 or 20% of the tithe um, for the monthly. And you just have to say, I don't care. Take a hike. Yeah, it was C.R. Wiley, I think the first time I heard the the word anti-fragile. And he was talking mm-hmm. about like yeah, that's risk right. on a barbell. You know, you, yeah. you have to balance risk with stability. And he's like, for the pastor, that's in the high risk, high risk. That's the high risk category, which is, which is funny because, you know, the rewards genuinely are eternal and there's not like a big bonus waiting for you here on earth, you know, for an inheritance, but the risk's very high because you like, like we said, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person and they stop attending. They stop tithing. You um, look at the wrong thing. You say the wrong thing. You would just, upset the wrong person and you're out on the street. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's very high risk. So you must balance that with other sources of income. Yeah. One one of the other things I think in terms of being family friendly, if the training is happening at a local level, one of the things that we can do with guys is say, Hey, listen, um, your family life, you know, maybe your your wife just had a kid or she's pregnant, she's sick, whatever it is, your, your child needs special attention or Whatever it is, you can say, okay, let's let's kind of hit pause here. Mm-hmm. Like, let's dovetail the training so that you need to take care of first things first. Yeah. Um, whereas seminary didn't allow for that. A lot of times, um, I'll, I'll never forget this. I, I can't remember the exact course. I think it was actually marriage and family counseling. Yeah, I'm almost positive that's what it was. Um, I couldn't make the first week of class because my second son was being born. Mm-hmm. And I emailed the teacher's assistant who actually, they're the ones who actually run the the course. Yeah. And I said, hey, do you mind if I send an email to the other students and let them know, hey, my, my son's being born. I can't make the first week of class. Um, could I get somebody's notes? And I got a really snarky reply back from the teacher's assistant. And he said, listen, if you're not prepared to be in class, you'll have to figure out that on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, but like my, it's not like I'm like just skipping out on class. <laughs> right. That, that was sort of the final straw for me. Um, do you think that, um, as you look at that, that sort of thing happening, what do you think it's, it's train, you're training your future pastors for something. Yeah. What you're doing is you're training them for people pleasing, 
You're training them for compromise. You're training them for fragility. You're training them to be beholden to interests mm. that are not. What you're doing is you're. The goal should always be to align the incentives to righteousness and to the mission of the thing, like to the mission that God's given the church. So the incentives should should align on that level where a, a good pastor who pastors well, qualified, doing a good job, there should actually be a financial incentive to the degree the church is capable to say, we are going to make sure we take care of this man's family. Yeah. We're going to make sure we give him enough money because we want him to be a qualified man. We want him to have children, be a model family, all that stuff. Um, we The seminary should also be aligned that way where the funding of the seminary shouldn't be aligned with getting as many people through as possible, regardless of their qualification. That right now, if you think about the way that the incentive lines up with um, the finances for that guy, it's like, when can he start making money in this career? When he finishes the degree is the idea. Well, what if to finish the degree really quickly is going to make him disqualified because of his family, neglecting his family? The incentives don't align properly. So this is the difficulty, I think, is that you have seminary completely not just not aligning with the proper incentive structure towards righteousness. It's actually incentivizing a lot of unrighteous behavior. Mm. So the exception would be people. I, I think it, it makes it easier for the exception to be righteousness in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, one of the other issues uh, that I saw was the amount of women that were brought into the seminary setting. Yeah. Um, generally, they wouldn't let them in the shepherding slash pastoral track, like at Southern Seminary, yeah. um, but they would put them in something like counseling, but they were doing most of the same coursework, mm-hmm. essentially learning how to be pastors. Yeah. Do you guys see a problem with this? Are lady pastors bad? That's, I don't think that's a thing. I've never heard of a lady pastor before. No. I mean, I look to the scriptures. Don't see it. No, don't see it there. No, that's problematic because, again, it just reinforces the entire idea that they'll take whomever, you know, just to make sure that they have enough tuition. Whole new market. Income. Yeah, it's a whole new market. Enough tuition, and especially with females, how much, uh, you know, women like to do schoolwork. Yeah, get in debt, go to school. Schools are often designed for women. I think universities now are something like 70% female. So yeah, graduates I think are seventy percent female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I mean I think it just further, you but, know, confirms the idea that that they'll take anybody. But you look at that like okay, let let's say that you take them at their word and they're not becoming quote unquote pastors. Uh, same deal, Westminster Presbyterian uh, Seminary. I I read the commentary. I think it was a commentary on Mark, but there's like a professor at Westminster who is a woman. Teaching, so this is the other part yeah. of the argument. Yeah. You have a lot of female professors, and they will say, "Well, they're not pastoring," and we're like, "No, they're training well, pastors." Here's the problem: Paul says, "I don't allow a woman to teach or hold authority over a man," and he's specifically talking about in the context of the church. I think you could make a pretty effective a fortiori argument. How much more should we not entrust the formation of the men who are teaching and holding authority over the church to female professors? I think that's absolutely like I think all of the reformers would be like, "What? I had no idea. This is insane. Yeah. This is all but new Dan's to me. Like and shocked this over is here. Crazy. And Are you serious? And it's happening yeah. in the in in the reform world. That's my other point. Like, well, I so expect I, it from like the libs. Well, yeah, like Liberty like University flag, and PCUSA. What's you the know, cat crowd? glasses snarky lady? Karen Swallow Pryor. Yeah, yeah, and like I, that's Liberty University. I expect it. 
Yeah. And well, and that's the thing. So, like, and it's I, English. I don't think she's in a pastoral training program, but anyway, keep going. Yeah. I did a similar podcast uh, or some of the same topics, I guess. The Softening of the American Pastor, Hard Men podcast. One of the things I said in there is we, in a reform world, we've got to own the fact that this isn't just, you know, Nadia Bolts Weber. Right. And her promise ring molded into a vagina. Like, that isn't just the kind of people who are doing this. It's people in the reform camp who are sending women to seminaries to get really pastoral training. They're taking their money. Yeah. And then they're allowing pastors to be trained by women. And they're also establishing a lot of times in these counseling degrees. Yes. Eric, they're, 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 they're establishing a quasi-female eldership. Yes. They're, they're promoting by, uh, by de facto like implication that the male pastor, it is generally not equipped to pastor, shepherd, and counsel half of the church, yep. which is not true. This is a common error where you have churches that establish women's ministries or female counseling departments, and they basically say, when a woman comes for counseling, we put them over here. Well, where in the Bible is that established? I mean, Titus too, older women teach the younger women to be workers at home, to be, but when we're talking about pastoral counseling for sin, repentance, for theological training, issues like that, male pastors are qualified and called to teach women too. So, well, in that passage, it's Paul telling Titus, Here's what you tell the women. Yeah, he's telling pastor the women to do this. Yes, exactly. It's like this is what you should counsel them. It's it's adopting the corporate modern model of sexed piety and of uh, of the corporate business model for the training of our pastors. Why would we expect to get any other fruit other than corporate churches that are not aligned with the word of God? Is We're it, getting the fruit we asked for. Can you lay siege to places anymore? Is that a thing? I think yeah. we could. Oh, yeah. I mean, siege. but you okay. might prison. Oh. You might go to prison. Yeah. Like just take <laughs> my wife might not appreciate that. Dan looks that. so disappointed right Taking now. Taking back man. institutions. Oh, man. Well, we we do need to build seminaries and and training centers that are different from this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh one of the other we're still on pitfalls number 4 that I have on here is uh, academic elitism and the tie to academia, which in today's culture is hard left leaning runs rampant. Yeah. So one of the problems you have in this professorial world is like their bread comes from getting getting the right books published by the right crossway publisher getting on the conference tour uh getting in with the right people who approve of you and also being approved of by other academic elites the, the fruit of this is like in broad daylight now yeah and what it is generally bred is cowardly men who will bow to whatever the current thing is and, and the thing about acad- academia and the work of academic theology, really any precise academic discipline, is that it's often the world of nuance is very important. The world of precision, nuance, et cetera. And so what that can tend to make is very careful men in the, mm. you know, the Doug Wilson quote, yeah. the, the history will not be written by the careful men, but, you know, by the courageous men. Yeah. So when you come to issues where actually the, past, the correct pastoral response is a brawl, is that guy's a wolf, get him out. And he's going to give all kinds of soft words to pretend like he's not a wolf. And he's going to be able to, he's going to, wolves are going to figure out how to play the fiddle of bureaucracies and and manipulate those and talk the right things to the right people and keep the right things behind closed doors. Wolves are good at that. And, and what you don't need are men who are obsessed with nuance in, in an academic sense, who are in charge of watching over the gates. You need men who will shoot like who will actually shoot the, the bow and pull the sword out sometimes. 
Christendom Bible College offers a one-year certificate in the humanities for students who intend to pursue a degree or for students who prefer to begin their chosen occupations upon completion of our program. Older students who never attended college or who went to a college where the humanities were less robust will also find our program stimulating and suitable. Located steps from the Ohio River in the town of New Richmond, we're unaccredited in order to remain free to teach as our biblically-minded consciences demand. As servants of Christ, we won't wear the yoke of the woke. Instead, we stand on the shoulders of Christianity's giants, not to stew in nostalgia, but to see through the culture wars fall to the glorious days of a Christendom still to be built. Our exceptional faculty are committed to the historic, biblical foundations of our faith. Come be a part of Christendom Bible College. Visit us on the web at christendombiblecollege.org to learn more. While there, be sure to sign up for our email updates and receive your free three-chapter excerpt of our very own Dr. Frank J. Smith's new book, Race, Church, and Society. So, so you're saying because they emphasize this high acad- academia, they're allowing wolves in because they're not measuring character or just simply like they produce academics that don't shoot the wolves? I think kind of both. But you see, to take the, the um, female eldership or homosexual uh, issue in the church today, you can find extremely rigorous, quote unquote, academic defenses of female eldership with sources cited that have been published in peer-reviewed journals. And, and then people will be like, uh, you, we, you go engage on that level. You need to go engage on that level and you need to write a counter paper. And a lot of the times the answer is like, no, you need to laugh at it, mock it, and, ana- and damn it, and anathematize it. And just don't engage with it. And the academic model is, is built on this back and forth precisionism, bureaucracies often. And it creates a certain type of person sometimes, I think, who is like the you know classical academician who won't make a firm statement ever because he always wants to make sure that it's to qualify it's every qualified statement. perfectly and can never be assaulted on any side. And the reality is sometimes you need to say all Cretans are liars. Sometimes you need to say that without footnoting and saying, well, actually some of them aren't, but you know, it's more of a generalism that I'm speaking in right now and I'm going to defend that now. And then I'm going to give you a developed theology of rhetorical devices like the hyperbole and how they're permissible because of the prophet Ezekiel. And it's like, yeah, we do need, like we do need people to produce precise theological work, but pastors, while they are required to give an account for all of their words, Pastors also need to be able to pull the sword out and speak in generalisms and attack wolves and say, I don't believe you. You're a liar. You're a, you're a charlatan, that kind of thing. And I think academia isn't the best setting to create that. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that we've seen in the local context is if you have local courageous men, particularly your pastors, you get the opposite of this. Because really what it comes down to is training that muscle that when you're in counseling or you're dealing with a difficult person— and you know the difficult thing that has to be said, Yeah, it's just training the muscle of doing that. Whereas yes. what I found the result of a lot of seminary-trained guys was is they learned how to be bureaucratic. So, you know, you'd say, hey, that's a problem that such-and-such's such daughter came in with, you know, a tube top and, you know, no bra. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, I absolutely agree, agree with you. But, you know, in this situation, I just think we just need to give them space. We have to have a long leash 
Um, we we just have to let them grow in love. You know, let them sit under good preaching. It's the kindness of God that leads. They'll eventually to get it. So there's all these like all these different ways of being a coward. Yeah, and really the the fundamental muscle of pastoral ministry is seeing with your eyes mm-hmm. and responding in courage to difficult things with hard words where they're needed, soft words where they're needed, thick skin, unbought. All of these really important qualities. Uh, character qualities mm-hmm. and a lot of the time the model of seminary is actually incentivizing men to not have those yeah you're actually rewarded it, it goes mm-hmm. back to incentives what you said and this is point number five and six on my list here uh, seminary has trained a generation of soft effeminate pastors who lack spines again the a lot of the fruit is there and then the last thing number six was it abstracts you from the local church we've already touched on this one but it's not a good thing to be dislocated from your people in place. So in the closing minutes, uh, closing conversation that we have here, I want to go toward a better model. Brian, you mentioned this, local training in local churches, but I wonder if you would just start to spell out for us what would be some of the components if, if say, we were to train people locally here, uh, the ideal situation, what would be some of the component parts of that? What would it look like? You know, number one, it has to be virtue focused first, and the incentive structures have to align with that. Mm. Virtue, virtue first. Character is the foundation. Seminaries will say that in their statement of faith, but then not act like that's true by incentivizing rhetoric, academic ability, those kinds of things, politicking, that that sort of thing. And even when they try, they're not really geared to to do it. Yeah. We had, so when I the first year I was there, we had shepherding groups, right? So you'd like meet with a professor and, you know, it was basically like cocktail hour for Baptists who don't drink. And uh, so (laughs) like twice as boring. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I I remember going to like the first one and there was a guy in our group and the guy, you know, the professor asked him, he said, so uh, you're new to seminary. What's uh, what are your thoughts so far? And he goes, well, he goes, I don't know. It's confirmed two things for me. I know I was called to preach because I am so good at it. And number two, I cannot stand people. (laughs) And I remember thinking, like, oh boy, how did this guy get let through? And the professor was like, wow, huh, that's uh, that's interesting. Wow, yeah, I would definitely rethink that. Okay, yeah. uh, who's next? <laughs> and that's that's what I mean. It's but like that, that in a local church, that it should have been like, you are not qualified. You just have to admit to yourself, like we really have to admit that in order to know somebody is qualified in their character for the office of pastor. You need more than a reference letter from somebody. Yeah. Like the training of that person needs to be connected to a vital a vital uh, relationship of authority and submission, training. I need to be able to observe them over long periods of time in contexts where they're not incentivized to hide their true self. It's very difficult to hide your true self over a period of years in an actual community. It's just, you just, if people figure out who you actually are. It's really easy to present a false front on an application, on social media, and in uh, small concentrated environments where you know the, the discrete beginning and end point, like a class, a small group. Or even serving in, in a yeah. church as you're attending seminary. Exactly. For just a short period of time. Yeah, where you're like, you're going to go and you're going to do Sunday school and you're going to. I've yeah. got eight weeks of this unit where I've got to go serve in a local church doing this thing to check the box. You could be the best dang deacon for eight weeks. Anybody could. But. To be uh, use Ben as an example, Ben Garrett, uh, our deacon. He's our only ordained deacon at, at the church. At he's Solomon. actually my deacon. 
uh, my deacon, uh, Ben Garrett. Thank you for admitting that he was my deacon. Um, <laughs> he, he's a deacon. If, you, if he hears us saying that, he actually corrects us and says, I'm a deacon of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is correct. Um, also my deacon, but yeah. And my, ahead. yeah, also I am in the, I am a member of the body of Christ, therefore. Right. Um, so, uh, <laughs> wow, really derailed here. Take Ben, where it, deacons are to be tested first. Elders are to have these visible fruits of character and managing of their household well, all these things that are much different, for, not given a fits of rage, now, all these different character, self-controlled. Okay, how do you see that? How do you see that? I have to be with somebody. Like, we're, by the time Ben, uh, ben has pastoral aspirations, by the time, Lord willing, if Ben comes up into eldership in our church and into a pastoral role in our church— we will have known him and his family and his children for years. For years, we'll be able to see them in 10,000. We'll be able to see Ben in really stressful situations. We'll be able to see Ben in, you know, when he's his guards down, when he's with friends. Like you, you just get, you get a whole picture. So to me, one of the baseline features of training pastors is that we have to disconnect the training of pastors from academic theological training and admit that that academic pastoral, or I mean, academic theological training, though it is an important part of being qualified to pastor, properly situated on top of this character foundation and this life foundation, and then admit which of those is easier to do from a distance. It's very easy in today, in, in our day and age, to take a man who's qualified in his character in a local church and get him the resources to be trained academically is not difficult at all. In fact, in some ways, it's easier than sending them to seminary. Well, I think that's part of our like celebrity evangelical culture. I remember a guy, I uh, just got fed up with it eventually, because um, I heard it for about a year, was one of the uh, leadership team at the church that I was pastoring. Um, but he would, he would come up and he would say, yeah, but my favorite evangelical celebrity pastor did that sermon better, and so you should go listen to it. Here's the link. And finally, I said to him, I said, you know why you like that guy? Because he never disciplines you. Yeah. You like that guy because he doesn't see your sin. Mm -hmm. And because he, he never holds you accountable. You can listen to the sermon and you can feel good about it. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. It gets to this issue of it's easy to do something far away. Yeah. But, but it's really hard. The character stuff, you can't really hide up close. I want to see Ben go and, and, you know, when we're in this training, giving opportunity to a man, testing phase, even as a deacon, this was, it was involved in his deacon training. It's like, okay, Ben, go do this, go talk to this person, have this conversation. It's going to be awkward and difficult. You're going to be, and then he goes and does it and you see, I can go, okay, well, that's yeah, you, a layer in the trust, uh, wall, you, right? You've gone through, like we've gone through with, with Ben as a good example. Like there's been some hard weeks this last summer mm -hmm. with just tons of stuff going on in the church trial and, yeah. trial and grief and sorrow. And it's like, okay, what does a guy do in those situations? Mm -hmm. You can't know that from a resume. No. Um, and what does he do when you're not paying him any money? Which was Ben's scenario. Like Ben's a volunteer for the church spending 20 hours some of these weeks plus following up with families, going and making sure they're taken care of, organizing, reaching out to the elders and saying, elders, do you have everything you need to care well for these families? That's the kind of thing. What class is that at seminary? What, it's, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a category error to even ask that question. So I, I totally agree with you. Let me ask on the, on the because we're not saying no academia, no yeah. uh, rigorous study, what would you envision, Dan, for the theological training? What, what does that look like in a local context? Um, 
is do you learn some things maybe from you know Kevin Love at head, headmaster of our school? Uh, how do you process? How do we train these men theologically? Yeah, so in our in our uh, elder candidacy process, we go through a series of interviews to where we talk about a lot of these theological distinctives, and mm-hmm. we because it's not just like how much do you know about the thing, but also are you like minded? Yeah. You know, yeah. how do you reason through some of this stuff? Because there's also a fit on an elder team. Yeah. Because you you have personality issues, potentially. You know, you have to work well as a team. If you're always fighting and nitpicking about, you know, things that aren't even like you agree on paper on theology. And anyway, I'm digressing. And then really it comes down to a couple of things. First is uh, constantly reading, being a self-educator, being curious. Mm. I, I remember... Uh, Brian and I, it was some years ago, mm-hmm. Brian had said, I got to figure this eschatology thing out, this end times theology, yeah. like really got to nail it down. And, and so he was reading, I started reading some books cause I'm like, yeah, you can't just have a huge theological category where you're not really settled, you know, and lead people effectively in it. Yeah. When you're like, yeah, I'm a pan millennialist, you know, it'll all pan out in the end. I hate, I hate <laughs> you know? that joke. I know. Well, yeah. Cause it sounds like pantheist, which is a different thing. Also bad. <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> Way worse. Was this your but, 200 books a year year? No, nah, I different don't know. Year. I think that's the year different. before it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or after I can't remember. So anyway, a, a self educator is very important, but also just like, Hey, you need to figure out like covenant theology. So mm-hmm. here's a book. Yeah. Uh, we give our our elders a book budget. Yeah, go go buy books, and it's hundreds of dollars. It's not a twenty dollar a year gift card to Barnes and Noble. Correct, correct. Yeah, and then there's another thing that you you figure out like you can read the books and you could take the classes and you could think you've got something nailed down, and then you actually like rubber meets the road. You have to actually convince people. Yeah, of a thing, and and that's a different. That's different, you know, trying to convince someone of a theological position, especially when it, when it actually like has visible fruit, mm-hmm. you know, or it, it really comes down to connecting the vision of the church and the direction you're going, you know, cause like Calvinism does that and post-millennialism does that a lot of, quite honestly, a lot of the systematics do yeah. that. Yeah. And so that's really where the, the point of testing comes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess my vision for some of that in, in the church is going to be in preparation for the office, but then it's beyond the office as well of, of the church. When you get into these decision points to where you have to lead actual people and convince them of an actual thing, you have to have your homework done. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dan, it's really interesting. I was thinking about how our circle at the church works. Like, you know, we work here at the church. Uh, we're together most days. Pretty much all the time. All the time. (laughs) So it's this combination of like, we're continually being like, have you read this? You should read this. Like, we're continually pushing each other to, yeah. I feel like we read a lot. So that's number one, making sure you have a gang of men that you can do that with. And then number two, you're wrestling with those things together. Yeah. Cause you're also applying and living them. Yeah. You're applying and living. You say, hey, we we tried this in our home. Did it work? You know, did it work in yours? Whatever. Uh, I've talked to this person in counseling. What what do you say to them? Counseling families. Oh, yeah. That's another one. How do you deal with the situation? So that's where I see the education thing is is really twofold, where yes, you're reading, but while all this is happening, something you cannot get, generally speaking, in seminary is you're in the midst of counseling. You're in the midst of come sit with us through this elders meeting. Come, 
yeah. learn yeah. how we dealt with this difficult situation with uh, you know loss of a loved one or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And a lot of that too is uh, even for us, like what do you do in a funeral? What do you do at a wedding? Yeah, I never learned that at seminary. They're not telling you like how to preach a funeral. Mm-hmm. It's really, especially Southern when I went there, it's how to be a preacher. Yeah. How to be a preacher, how to give a really good message in chapel that would be like, Ooh, ah, that guy's really good. It wasn't until pastoral ministry. And then I'm doing things like when I have tough situations, I'm sure we all do this. I, I would call Bill Smith or I would call yes. Rich, Rich Lusk. And I, Experienced, I would say, hey, I know you've done dozens and dozens and dozens yeah. of weddings. What do I do? Yep. Like these are the guys who are going to help you. That's where you're going to learn it. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about the academy, it might sound so far like we're saying academia is dumb. Precision theology is dumb. Like you don't need it. Just be a good blue collar guy and uh, theology doesn't matter. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What we need to do is properly situate the, the, the work of theology with the work of pastoring and in the local church. And I think we've, we've talked about that a lot. But I, I also envision and, and do think that there should be institutions of higher education where we do have elite theologians and we have, you know, great where we have the, the most gifted, talented uh, intelligent, these like top 5%, top 1% guys who are writing and directing the theology of the church and guarding the deposit of faith and all these things. We need the, 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 the experts there and the guys who are willing to like devote their life to learning about this one really narrow area of interest because they're interested in it and it's the glory of kings to search a thing out. Like all of that's true. We just need to, I think, kind of disentangle some of that from making pastors in the local church mm. in this process and making that the normative path where guys go, go through and they get, you know, 120 credit hour degree as the like mark of I'm ready to be a pastor. I'm ready to pastor a church. People are going to follow me because I have this thing and I can, you know, do all that. No, we should have a mechanism where we can recognize men who are incredibly intellectually gifted. Think of James B. Jordan or, you know, some other, uh, the, Peter Lightheart. Yeah, guys who are just like really smart. They rise to the top in the academic pursuit. In that rigor, they are really clear thinking and clear writers, and God blesses their work, and people are naturally listening to them and asking them for their analysis. And then we need to say, yes, let's let's figure out a pathway for those guys and establish institutions where that kind of learning can be preserved and carried on. And, and part of the key secret sauce to that, to me, really a lot of it comes back to money, the way that they're funded. Well, you think about something like uh, maybe Theopolis, you know, you're able to have a venue where those guys can teach James Jordan and, uh, yeah. you know, Peter Lightheart. We just mentioned those. So that's one thing. But, um, you know, you can train men without it being this extravagantly expensive thing. You know, you have a couple seminars yeah. a year, whatever you produce material, you have somebody who's writing books and researching and all those sorts of things. So, yeah. I think some of it, too, is this is so true of institutions in the last century. We get used to things like, say, say like grocery stores, mm-hmm. uh, say public education. We just can't imagine what it would be like other than that because we think, well, that's the world we grew up with. Yeah. But if you go to, like, read history from, like, 1900 and beyond, there were no grocery stores. There were no public schools. So I think some of it is just reading your history and having an imagination that, like some of the greatest thinkers of all time weren't trained the way we train people today. 
And so we got to start thinking outside that box. Dan, do you, do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I think so. What Brian said to piggyback on that, because it was really good to have these uh, academics, these really intelligent men that are specialists, mm-hmm. yeah. very important. But I think some of the mistake is when you try to make the pastor a specialist. Yeah. He's because not. he's not, he's a, he's a generalist. You have to have so much range as a pastor. Yeah. You have to be able to speak to a lot of these theological issues. Um, but most of the time, and I don't know what young guys picture when they're going to be a pastor, if they're having like theological debates or something like that. But most of the preaching time, it's to like, a large crowd. Yeah. It's like, there's some guy who's like, Hey, I'm looking at porn and I, I don't know how to stop. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I don't know how to stop. What should I do with my life? How should I earn a living? Mm-hmm. Or like, Hey, I made a mess of my marriage. What do I do? Like that's, that's like so much of the pastoral work. How, how like parent, my spouse yeah. died. What now? How Why? Do I, how do I parent my kids? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. The questions you generally don't get are like, Hey, I got a question on how to parse this verb in Hebrews nine. I'm wondering how, um, the infralapsarian superlapsarianism <laughs> thing kind of shakes out. Those are all important things. Yeah, they absolutely are. But 90 plus percent of pastoral work is shepherding. That's the, it's abiding picture you get yeah, throughout it, scripture is of a shepherd. Yeah. And so it, it, Another thing, so you, people are incentivized to respect those that have the degree. Yeah. But, but they don't have the, the character. And so yeah. it's, it's hard for the, these guys going all the way back to the beginning where you have this high turnover rate. These guys, they, they have a hard time earning respect because they can't say, oh no, I, I can, you should listen to my advice because I'm wise, because look how my, I lead my family. Yeah. Look at my wife, look at my kids. Look at my finances. You know, like, look at those things. Look at these 10 other families that have been in this church listening to their pastors for years and they're yeah. functional. And, and submitting fruitful. to their authority and doing Joyful. what they say. Yeah, that they're producing fruit. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really where that's, I think there's definitely a, a space for a specialist. Mm-hmm. The mistake is trying to make the pastor a specialist in one yeah. narrow area, which of is academic preaching, theology. Preaching and theology, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, that is not the, the, when you look at the qualifications again, like, this is you can't just speed past this point. They are largely about the shape of his house and his life before God, and then he must be able to preach and teach and guard doctrine. It's something he must be able to do, but it is not 90% or 98% of what he does. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was uh thinking back to a book that Paul Tripp wrote that was actually a good Paul Tripp book. It was called Dangerous Calling. Yeah, actually a really good book. And this is one of the quotes in there. I think it's exactly what we're talking about. He says, It is quite easy for seminary students to buy into the belief that biblical maturity is about the precision of theological knowledge and the completeness of their biblical literacy. So seminary students graduate who are Bible and theology experts, and they tend to think of themselves as being mature. But it must be said that maturity is not merely something you do with your mind. Maturity is about how you live your life. And, and here's, I think, the key. It is possible to be biblically literate and in need of significant spiritual growth and maturity. You, you have seminary professors who are not regenerate, who are academic theologian experts. And if I can make a point about what this might look like, yeah. I think in two directions. Yeah. In one direction, I think every local church and regional, maybe there's a regional association of churches that, that would work together on this, should have a mechanism for identifying, training, equipping, educating, giving opportunity, practical experience to pastors and ordaining pastors all within their little pond. 
that should be something that's happening everywhere. Mm. And then two, it is good and meat and natural in the world that God made for some locales, some regions and some churches and some areas to become highly influential, establish something like a Westminster Seminary or a, 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 a publishing house or some theological academic work or, or practical application, th- theological living type of work. And for those people to have margin and time to focus on writing and teaching and doing that investigation, and, and that should also exist and, uh, and and I think you'll see both, but you shouldn't try to make the two, you shouldn't try to make that influential seminary destination sort of city the mechanism for how you make 90 plus percent of your pastors. I yes. think that's kind of the vision that we're putting forward here is to say it's it's good and right in the world God made for some men even particularly to rise up as influential thinkers and theologians. That's actually not a problem. That's no. that's not a problem to be solved. You know, sometimes people go, "Oh, celebrity pastors." Yes, yeah, celebrity is is not the way, but it is good that we'd have regional leaders, influent, you know, highly influential men who are particularly gifted. They stand before kings in their work in this work of theology and pastoring. They're going to be influential in making resources. That's all good, but that's not the normal way for everybody. Mm. The normal way for everybody should be that local churches are doing this work. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Great place for us to wrap up, gentlemen. Appreciate the conversation and want to encourage people again to check us out on Patreon. We'll include in the show notes links where you can sign up for that. Christian content, Brian has said, is worth supporting. So definitely put your dollars behind uh, briansovey.com as well. Check him out there. A lot of great music. Gentlemen, until next time, Festinalente, make haste slowly.